0: welcome back to the big amateurs of monologues my name is richard ford and i'm your host just a real quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamatrism.com. I can also be found on all the major third-party podcast directories, Apple Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, all those places. I have a blog that you can check out if you'd like. Uh, I haven't written in that really since March of 2021, but I've got some stuff that you might find interesting going back to early 2019. The name of the blog is cagerredux.com. That's c a g e r r e d u x.com. And if you want to reach out to me, you can send me an email at rich at cagerredux.com. That's R I C H at c a g e r r e d u x.com. All right, today is September 5th, 2022. And boy, we had some crazy news coming out on Friday about the expansion of the college football playoff. And I think this caught a lot of people by surprise because the CFP expansion talks appear to have died in January of 2022. And I'm going to talk about the history of these talks about expanding the football playoff. But news broke on Friday afternoon, mid to late afternoon. This was a bombshell story. And I view this really as a Friday news dump. This came on the eve of the first football Saturday, mean first meaningful football Saturday of the 22-23 season. And there have been a handful of articles, and now we're starting to get some details that are dribbling out. But this story really kind of got overwhelmed by all of the hyperbolic sensationalized coverage of the games on a Saturday. And as I'm going to discuss in this episode... I think there's some aspects of this decision that the CFP decision-makers and the big-time football movers and shakers don't want to talk about. So this was very interesting timing. Call me cynical, I don't think it's coincidental, because obviously these discussions have been going on for quite a while. This isn't something that just happens overnight, particularly given the resistance to the uh, expansion of the football playoff that came through the Big Ten, the Pac-12, and the ACC, really going back to the summer of 2021, and so I'm going to walk through the history of that. And I'm going to emphasize the Atlantic Coast Conference's opposition to the expansion of the the CFP, and that ran through Jim Phillips, who is the ACC Conference Commissioner, and I think the ACC's initial posturing in its opposition to CFP expansion and then its abrupt U-turn just this past week makes a mockery of the values-based defenses and justifications. For the big time college sports marketplace, particularly big time football. So, let me talk about the CFP, how it's set up, and more importantly, where it fits in to the history of the evolution of the big time football product and the aspirations of the various big time football market participants. So, the CFP was formed in 2012. In the timeline in the evolution of big time football, that, that's an important historical. Marker because in 2012, you had really the end of the first wave of conference realignment, and you had the creation of the Power Five conferences, these five mega conferences. And I talk about that evolution in my Pay for Play series, where I walk through the important eras in the history of college sports, which means really the history of college football. But you had the formation of the CFP and the infrastructure was in place in 2012. The first game wasn't played until 2015. And the CFP replaced the ball championship series format for postseason football, which was bowl-based. There wasn't a playoff. What's so important to understand about the history of the transition from the bowl games into the playoff, is that there's been historic resistance to any kind of a playoff. I discussed that when I uh, talked about those hearings in 1997, which was really the beginning of the BCS era and the transition from the Bowl Alliance to the BCS. And then those hearings in 2003, were the have-nots, which are now really the group of five, the have-nots back then were saying that the postseason was rigged in favor of what are now the Power Five. And of course that's the case. And you had very powerful people uh, on both sides of that fence trying to make their case. And uh, Jim Delaney, for example, who was then the commissioner of the Big Ten, and I would say probably the most powerful conference commissioner thus far. Greg Sankey may wind up being viewed that way historically. But Delaney was really the brains behind a lot. of the structural changes in college football really over the last 30 years. And he testified at those hearings that a college football playoff would be the death of college football and the NCAA was talking about trying to do their own playoff, which I guess they technically could have done after Board of Regents, but as a practical matter, it wasn't going to be feasible because, as Delaney said in that 1997 hearing, you go ahead and do your playoff NCAA. We'll, we'll just sit it out. You know, the, the what are now the Power Five. We'll just sit it out. We'll play our ball games, which you have nothing to do with and never have had anything to do with. And let's see who watches your playoff. The fact of the matter is nobody's going to watch because it doesn't hold the interest of the American public. And Jim Delaney was absolutely right. But the philosophy of the big time football power players and decision makers was that a playoff was going to be the death of college football. So this was a a big transition away from that mentality and into a football playoff, which fans had wanted for a long time. And I think when you look at the CFP historically, you can see that it's really the logical extension of. Board of Regents. That's how I have characterized it. And of course, in Board of Regents, we had a group of powerful schools made up mostly of what are now the Southern schools in the Power Five, really pressing the NCAA to relinquish its monopoly over televised football. And it was a brutal battle. A couple of schools wound up suing the NCAA, Georgia and Oklahoma. And in that case, they claimed that the NCAA's monopoly over televised football was a facial per se violation of federal antitrust laws. And uh, the district court agreed, the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals agreed, and then the United States Supreme Court agreed. And on the backside of that, College football, big time college football was essentially decoupled from the NCAA and it is operated as an entirely independent product. Uh, It is operated under the NCAA umbrella for very self serving reasons because they get all the benefits of NCAA membership and some of the protections and immunities, legal protections and immunities that have been the product of NCAA litigation. But they don't have to pay a penny for any of the association expenses. All that's paid by revenue from March Madness. So the Power Five basically are having their cake and eating it too. They have this product that is operating completely outside of the NCAA's control, at least at the financial level. And at the regulatory level, the NCAA has virtually zero say in how the big time powerful football interests run their football product, particularly the postseason product. And the way that the CFP is structured, the playoff games run through the existing bowl system and the CFP gets revenue from ESPN. They did a contract with ESPN in 2012. We think they get paid about half a billion dollars a year plus revenue from the bowls that are tied to the CFP. So the big-time football interests have really been able to create this football playoff product and also retain the value of the bowls. And there, you know, there's been some talk about The impact on the bowl games of the CFP and that it's weakened the bowl games. Who knows if that's going to prove to be true. But, again, big-time football is having their cake and eating it, too. They have the playoff. They own it. The NCAA has nothing to do with it. Then they have the big bowl games that feed into the CFP and provide additional revenue. So we really don't know. How much money comes into the CFP and how it's spent. But it looks like they could be bringing in right now $700, $750 million a year. So let's look at the structure of the CFP. When it was formed in 2012, it was formed as a limited liability company that's very important because it was not formed as an education nonprofit the NCAA is an education nonprofit the conferences are education nonprofits the member institutions are education nonprofits and at the values level because they hang their nonprofit hat on education they have to justify their behavior and their economic activity within that value structure the CFP does not have to do that they have zero connection to the educational purpose and mission of higher education. This is a money making entity. It is a private business that is uh, designed to make money. And the decision makers don't owe a fiduciary obligation to any governing boards at the NCAA. They don't owe a fiduciary obligation to the uh, membership. And importantly, they don't Owe any fiduciary obligations to the athletes whose labors underwrite the obscene riches that are coming into the CFP. Uh, there are two tiers of governance in the CFP. We have a board of managers and a management committee. Both have 11 representatives. The board of managers is the top tier and it is made up of 11 university presidents and chancellors. One president or chancellor from each of the 10 FBS conferences and then the president of Notre Dame. Beneath the board of managers is the management committee and that is made up of the 10 conference commissioners from the FBS conferences plus the athletics director of Notre Dame. So you have this private for-profit company whose sole object is to make money, as much money as they possibly can. And they're operating outside of the education context, but they are governed by big-time football university presidents and chancellors and big-time football conference commissioners. And I think it's also important to note that Even though the Group of Five conferences are represented in the CFP, they have a bit role here, and they are clearly subordinate to the Power Five decision makers. And it's my belief that the Power Five brought the Group of Five into the CFP as antitrust immunity, antitrust camouflage, because the Group of Five interests had been making noise going back really into the 1990s in this have-have-not framing of postseason football, that the haves were violating antitrust laws by excluding the have-nots. There were hearings in Congress and powerful senators were saying, yeah, we see that there's an antitrust issue here. They didn't want to get involved by legislating. They put pressure on the parties to sit down and try to work something out. But there has been that threat looming out there that there's an antitrust issue if the Power Five had just gone out on its own and form the CFP without the group of five or some other subset of schools that were not controlling the postseason football marketplace, then they would be just a easy antitrust target. So by bringing in the group of five, they sort of ameliorate the antitrust concerns. And they still keep 80% of the money because in the revenue distribution formulas for the CFP, at least those that have been disclosed. And there seems to be some agreement on the fact that it's an 80-20 split with the Power Five getting 80 and the Group of Five getting the table scraps, essentially. But this is a Power Five plus Notre Dame show. They are calling the shots and they are bringing in the money and keeping the money. And there really hasn't been much written about this CFP. There hasn't been a lot of curiosity in the sports media as to how it really does its business. And it's sort of this mysterious entity. And one of the reasons for that is that By deciding to operate as a limited liability company, a private for profit company, rather than an education nonprofit, the CFP doesn't have to make any public filings that show any of its financial information. So when you operate as an education nonprofit, you have to file what's called a Form 990 tax return. The NCAA has to file one, the conferences have to file one, individual institutions have to file one. And it gives you a basic snapshot of how the money comes in, how much of it there is, how it's spent, and whether those expenditures are consistent with the stated nonprofit purpose. And for all these institutions and conferences and the NCAA, it is education. So the CFP doesn't have to make any of those. Disclosures. And they don't have to go through the motions or the pretense of trying to justify their economic activity under the principles and values of education or the rules that the IRS sets for education nonprofits. And I think a lot of people are confused, quite frankly. About what the CFP is, what it does, who runs it, and what its connection is to the NCAA education-based model. And I think there's a good reason for that confusion. Because what you see is that you have the same people who are sitting on governing boards at the NCAA and they are benefiting from all this education-based propaganda and amateurism and the collegiate model and the student-athlete that the entire regulatory model has been built around and the financial model has been built around. Some of those same people are sitting on the CFP board making these decisions under the cover of darkness in their capacity as business people and profit-seeking business actors. So they're wearing two fundamentally different hats when it comes to the corporate structure, the regulatory structure, and the purpose of those two entities. When any of those people speak publicly on matters that relate to the CFP, People assume because they come from higher education and because most of those people also hold or have held important positions in the governance process under the NCAA umbrella or at the conference level that they are speaking the values of higher education and nothing could be further from the truth. And I think when these powerful spokespeople are talking about the CFP and its interests, they're very happy for the public to be laboring under the misapprehension that the goals and values of the CFP are aligned with the goals and values of higher education. And Greg Sankey is a perfect example of that because he's been such a go-to spokesperson, both for the NCAA's interests and then also for the CFP's interests. When he's speaking on matters that really are CFP issues, people automatically assume that he is doing that through the lens of the values of higher education. And you're not going to see in an ESPN article, the writer drawing that important distinction and say, Sankey speaking here on behalf of a for-profit company that is not operating in the education space. So listener beware. Sankey is not talking about education here. He's talking about rapacious money-seeking and greed and profit maximization that has nothing to do with any educational purpose. And the NCAA has justified its profit maximization under the collegiate model theory, Miles Brandt's theory, that there is a duty that universities have to maximize revenue in football and men's basketball so that we can create participation opportunities downstream in sports that can't support themselves. And that that transfer of revenue, that redistribution of revenue is entirely consistent with the institution's nonprofit mission. And you know that thinking goes beyond the institutional level because at the NCAA level, you have the same thing, a massive aggressive transfer of wealth from Division I men's basketball players to downstream beneficiaries association-wide through these block grants to Divisions 2 and Divisions 3. And then, of course, as I noted earlier, all that basketball revenue funds the NCAA bureaucratic state. Not a penny of football money does. Again, we don't know how the CFP money is spent. We don't know whether those allocations that go to the various beneficiaries wind up being used for a purpose that could conceivably be consistent with the institutions, the end users, uh, nonprofit mission, but they don't even have to make that case. They don't have to offer that justification. They can do whatever the hell they want to with that money. And what we do know is that because of the composition of the CFP, that money is restricted to a very small number of conferences and institutions. So it isn't serving the greater good association-wide and college sports-wide. And that's really been one of the beefs of the Knight Commission, that big-time college football and and the CFP in particular are having their cake and eating it too. They're not paying their fair share share association-wide and across systems that can't pay for themselves. Of course, in those hearings in 1997 and then in 2003, you had the big-time powerful football interest saying, look, this is America. You eat what you kill. We have a product that people like. Um, There are other products out there that people don't like as much, and we make money and they don't. So why should we have to support them? Harvey Perlman made that argument explicitly at the 2003 hearings in the United States Senate, and he said, why Why should the University of Nebraska subsidize some other university's football program or their athletics program? That's silly. This is America. And I thought that in this country, if you put out a good product and you worked hard and you did the right thing, that you should be able to enjoy the fruits of that labor. That's the attitude that these people have, the CFP has, and the big-time powerful football interests have. They don't share that viewpoint when it comes to big-time men's basketball and how the NCAA spends it, its money, or with respect to the rights of the athletes who aren't allowed to participate in the fruits of their labor. But that's just the way that big-time football the world, and all those hypocrisies are baked in to the way that the CFP was set up. And So we have this t- these two expressions of the big-time college sports business model. You have the nonprofit side, you have the for-profit side, which is the most accurate. And I don't think there's really any question about that. But we don't really think about it that way, this tension between the CFP and the NCAA, because the beneficiaries and spokespeople in college sports, those wearing both hats both in the CFP and the NCAA have been very effective in conflating those interests and c- confusing the public about the true motives and purpose of the CFP. So let me now talk about the history of these CFP expansion talks because I think it tells a really important story. So this goes back to the summer of 2021. And, and earlier in the summer, there appeared to be some consensus and some cooperation among the CFP leaders and decision-makers that the CFP should expand from four teams to 12 teams. That was the proposal that was on the table, and that was being pushed by the SEC through Greg Sankey. It was being pushed by Notre Dame through their president and through Jack Swarbrick, who was their athletics director. And then the Big 12 was on board with that. Bob Bowlesby was pushing it. And at that time, it didn't appear as if the Big 12, or the ACC had any substantial objection, So that change looked like it was on track. And then heading into June, we had some of the most consequential milestones in the history of college sports. We had the Austin decision, On June 21st, we had the NCAA's last-ditch attempt to try to eliminate the state name, image, and likeness laws through preemption, basically sputtering out. And then on June 30th, Mark Emmert announced this interim policy on name, image, and likeness, and he dumped all his nil garbage at the feet of the institution. So heading into July, we were in really uncharted waters in college sports. There was all kinds of hand-wringing about what it all meant. And as those discussions dominated the college sports world heading through July, we had another bombshell development. And that was the SEC poaching Texas and Oklahoma from the Big 12. And that story coming on the backside of the events of June of 2021 just was a powder keg event, and I think it sent the Power Five conferences into a tailspin. And Bob Bowlesby's talked about this pretty directly, I think. There was a level of mistrust then among and between the Power Five conferences that he had never seen and of course he was very aggressive in his response to the SEC's pickup of Texas and Oklahoma and you know he was threatening to sue ESPN <laughs> and I guess by implication he's going after the SEC as well it was just not a good environment. And the juggernaut of the Power Five and the sense of unity and coordination that existed after 2012 just got blown to smithereens. And I think on the back side of that, you had the decision makers at the conference commissioner level getting really nervous. And another important overlay to this is that you had substantial turnover in the conference commissioner seats. So in 2020, you had Jim Delaney retiring. That was huge because he really had been the the standard bearer for Power Five interests, and he was the man. He was then what uh, Greg Sankey is now, or at least what people perceive uh, Sankey to be now. So Delaney was a top dog. He left. Warren took over, and Warren came out of an NFL background, so he really wasn't in the sort of the mix in college sports and the regulation of college sports and then the, the governance at the conference level. And then soon after that, you had Larry Scott leaving the Pac-12 and the Pac-12 brought in George Klyovkov, who came from the entertainment industry. He had no experience in college sports. So he w- he had a learning curve to ride as well. And then John Swafford, who had been at the ACC for years, he retired and the ACC brought in Jim Phillips. So you had this really interesting environment at that time in terms of uh, Power Five Conference Commissioner leadership. And Bowlesby, who had been the elder statesman among Power Five commissioners, because he had been there longer than Greg Sankey, he really lost some credibility, I think, and some authority after the Big 12 got their pockets picked by the SEC. So then you had Greg Sankey sitting at the top of the mountain. And Sankey had been the SEC conference commissioner since 2015. But remember, before that, he was a very powerful Associate Commissioner at the SEC under Michael Slive, and Sankey has been credited with, and he accepts credit for, uh, the autonomy movement in 2014. He was the brains behind that, apparently. Um, not sure where Delaney fit into that, but Sankey has been portrayed as the author of the Principles of Autonomy in 2014, and that, of course, was a process through which the Power Five completely segregated their interests and their rulemaking authority from the rest of the NCAA and created an association within an association in a sub-cartel of the NCAA. And it was driven by Power Five interests exclusively. It applied only to the Power Five, and it was a Power Five football power play. And then in August of 2021, about a month after the SEC got Texas and Oklahoma, the ACC, the Big Ten, and the Pac-12 announced a, quote, historic alliance. And to this day, it's not clear to me and a lot of other people what the purpose of that alliance was. It honestly didn't seem to have much practical purpose. And I think it was driven in large part out of the sense that the SEC had just steamrolled the rest of the power five and it was on an imperial march through the inventory of the weaker conferences and obviously the acc and the big 12 were in a position of weakness i talked about that quite a bit back after the sec got texas and oklahoma and i ranked the conferences in terms of stability when you look historically the acc and the big 12 are the least stable conferences and the most vulnerable in a conference realignment 2.0 scenario. But this alliance, I think, was an insurance policy, at least at the perception level, against the SEC's imperial instincts. And one of the episodes that I did, I think it was episode 42, titled Deja Vu All Over Again for Southern Football, because what happened in July of 2021 Willie was a repeat of this pattern through the history of college sports and big-time college football where the Southern interests have always been the Mavericks and the Troublemakers, and that goes back to the Sanity Code in the 1940s and the Seven centers and, and then, of course, through Board of Regents, which was really driven by Southern interests. And When the Alliance was announced, uh, some people made a joke of it, and I was among those people. I thought it was silly, and I was bewildered by the Big Ten's Inclusion in that alliance, and I, you know, I understood the conference commissioner turnover dynamic, and I think that that was important. And Warren was still feeling his way through and and getting his legs under him. And the Big Ten is a heavyweight. The SEC and the in the Big Ten are the heavyweights in college sports and college football, and among the Power Five conferences. And I just didn't see what the Big Ten got out of its alliance with the Pac-12 and the ACC. And I thought at the time, you know, this is a bad look for the Big Ten. The, the Big Ten is Ali, the SEC is Frazier. And Frazier was in, in the ring shadow boxing and getting points. And Ali was outside the ring sitting in the front row eating popcorn. And it just didn't make sense to me. And I, I said in one of my podcast episodes back then, and then I, I talked about it in July of this year, why didn't the Big Ten just step into the ring and start? throwing some haymakers, you know, because they have the capacity to do that. And ultimately, they did with the pickoff of UCLA and USC uh, just last month. And then, of course, they were in their negotiation window for a new contract for the broadcast media rights. They put together a very sophisticated NFL-like package with multimedia partners that's worth a billion dollars a year. And all of a sudden, Ali just put Frazier on the canvas and I was thinking you know why didn't the Big Ten assert itself back then So I think that that dynamic that the Big Ten, this this powerful conference had sort of submitted to an alliance with two much weaker partners, I think really exaggerated the appearance of power that the SEC had at the time. And that coincided, of course, with the beginning of this constitutional makeover. And we had Bob Gates coming out and announcing the Constitution Committee and behind the scenes, we know, in August of... 2021, you had powerful SEC interests that were putting together this transformation committee that they announced in October of 2021 that was going to implement constitutional changes into the Division I decision-making process. That turned out to be, in my judgment, an SEC power play. And the SEC has run that process. And the new constitution basically provided the power five, the things that it didn't get in autonomy 1.0 in 2014, they got everything that they wanted on their wish list from 2014, including control over infractions and enforcement. And who was leading those changes through the transformation committee? Greg Sankey, the conference commissioner of the SEC. And it also was running through Jerry Moore head president of the University of Georgia, who is the chair of the Division I Board of Directors. So you had this SEC power play while the Big Ten, the ACC, and the Pac-12 were shivering in place, sheltering in place, trying to protect themselves from the big, bad SEC. And I think all those dynamics created an imbalanced and false perception of the power structure among and between the Power Five. And of course, then you had the Alliance members expressing concerns about expanding the CFP. And you had them making up all kinds of justifications for why it shouldn't happen now. I don't think they were saying it shouldn't ever happen, but they wanted to press pause because of this new environment that was really defined by suspicion rather than common interests. And now that we have the benefit of hindsight, looking back on this alliance, I think probably the most important practical thing that it accomplished was putting a freeze on the CFP expansion. But then we're heading into 20. 20- 22. And in January, we basically have the new constitution in place. It was ratified on January 20th. And then we have the Trans- Transformation Committee, you know, moving forward and all that. But on January 14th, uh, 2022, something important happened. And That was that the ACC made a public announcement objecting To expanding the CFP. And one of the components of the CFP, I don't think I mentioned this earlier, but in order to change the format for the CFP, there has to be complete unanimity. If you get one no vote, then nothing happens. So you, you have essentially a veto power. And the ACC made the case that it would exercise that power, which basically meant the death of expansion talks. And it's really interesting when you look at the justifications that Phillips articulated in January of 2022. I'm going to start with an ESPN article from Andrea Adelson, who's a a great ESPN reporter, but she was the mouthpiece for Phillips. And Phillips pulled this tactic that we see when important announcements come from the inner sanctum of college sports decision makers. Phillips had a press conference with a quote-unquote small group of reporters. We we never know who these reporters are, but that's the way that these people get their message out through friendly media outlets and in a way that they can control the narrative. But uh, the title of this article is ACC Commissioner Jim Phillips' says CFP Expansion Should Wait Until Changes to Sport Have Been Evaluated. And it begins, ACC Commissioner Jim Phillips said Friday the league does not believe now is the right time to expand the college football playoff, explaining its position for the first time publicly after discussions to push through a 12-team format have produced no agreement. And then Phillips refers to wanting to focus and collaborate with our colleagues to reinvent the NCAA. And of course, this article is on January 14th, 2020. So we're six days before the constitution is ratified. Looked pretty clear at that time that it was going to be ratified. And so there was all these promises and all this big talk about this transformational makeover of college sports through this constitution and the transformation committee. And Phillips is on the transformation committee. So that's important to understand as well. And then Adelson says, in explaining the ACC's position, Phillips said that he has had more than 30 meetings with league presidents, athletics directors, football coaches, and administrators. And they all agree there needs to be a 365-day review of college football before any decisions are made. So that that's really important there for two reasons. One, basically Phillips is saying we have much more important fish to fry here than talking about the CFP expansion. We're in a phase of transformative change in college sports writ large and we have to really focus on those issues. The other thing that's interesting is that uh, among the people he consulted, there's an, an important omission. Who's that? The athletes. The athletes don't have A meaningful voice. I want to talk about the justifications for this pause. And uh, Philip says the membership, meaning the ACC membership, believes that we have a responsibility in looking at the CFP and college football from a holistic perspective and not just whether to add more teams to a playoff. Collectively, we have much larger issues facing us than whether to expand the CFP early by two Years. So Phillips, on behalf of the ACC, is really making a values argument. He's saying, look, we can talk about expansion later and about the short-term benefits of expansion and, and the money and all that. Right now, we have an obligation to look at all these issues from a holistic perspective, and we want a year-long evaluation of all of these big things problems in college sports. And then he leans into some specific reasons that, or specific things that he thinks need to be looked at before there's any discussion about expanding the CFP. And he says that they need to look at the, the bowl system. Because there has been all this talk about the impact of the CFP on the existing bowl system and rendering bowls irrelevant. Then they uh, wanted to talk about revenue distribution, wanted to talk about name, image, and likeness, and transfers, and then importantly, student, athlete, health, and welfare. And he said we need to look at the calendar, we need to look at the impact from a time commitment standpoint of expansion and all these issues that really transcend the short-term goals of the CFP. So the ACC is saying, we have these important things to look at and we want to look at them through a values-based lens. That is so important. You know, earlier I was talking about this tension between the CFP as a private for-profit company and then the educational interests that are expressed through the conferences, through the institutions, and through the NCAA. And here Phillips is speaking on behalf of the ACC in the context of the values of higher education, and they specifically invoke athlete, health, and welfare. And I'll just note that apparently after this interview with a small group of reporters, Phillips says that he actually had gone to athletes and spoken to athletes, and he said that he spoke to 15 football players on the Clemson roster, and those players had participated in a CFP national championship, and it won a CFP national championship. And in that championship year, Clemson th- played f- 15 games, and Phillips said that based on his conversations with these 15 Clemson football players who are uniquely situated to comment on the time demands and the impact on their lives of an expanded college football playoff, he said that all of them said no to expansion. Why? Because they don't want to play another football game. They said 15 games was probably too many, and 16, 17, 18 is just over the top. So Phillips was saying, we're drawing the line here because of the impact on these athletes. And Phillips' announcement really got a lot of media attention because he was coming out and saying, look, we are drawing a line in the sand and it's a principled line based on the values of our universities and our decision makers, our university presidents. Everybody agrees. Presidents, athletics administrators, the ADs, the coaches, and the athletes. Everybody is reading from the same page here, and we want to make a statement. The ACC was making a principled based statement and i think they also had some you know other concerns and there was an interesting article on the same day january fourteenth, 2022 in the athletic they did a story on it and it's titled acc commissioner jim phillips now is not the right time to expand the college football playoff that was kind of the standard headline but at the end of the article they asked some of their experts some questions about what this means and the first question is is cfp expansion dead and uh, Stuart Mandel, who uh, who writes some good stuff for The Athletic, he said, pretty much, basically, Phillips just uh, dropped the nuclear option on the table and said, we're going to veto any expansion talks. And then the next question is, you know, why does the ACC feel that this way? What What's the ACC's beef? And uh, Matt Fortuna, who writes, I don't think he writes for The Athletic, I'm not sure, maybe he does, but he basically said that this was really driven by university presidents and- they really want to make a statement here, and then uh, he also points out, and this is so important. He says there has been frustration among the alliance conferences, the ACC, Big Ten, Pac-12, over the "quote-unquote" rushed public nature of the 12-team proposal in June. And according to sources, there is a strong sense within the ACC to not simply bow down to the SEC and its increasingly growing power hold over the rest of college football, no doubt. And that was really the elephant in the room in the pullback on the expansion talks. You didn't hear people really speaking on this term, so I thought it was really cool that Fortuna at least said out loud what a lot of people were thinking but didn't want to write. And then, of course, since the ACC took this position, this public position, in the context of this alliance, the three-conference alliance, there was at least the tacit assumption that the... Big Ten and the PAC-12 agreed with the values-based arguments that the ACC was making. And heading into the spring and summer of 2022, there was virtually no discussion about the CFP expanding. And I think there was a belief that uh, the ACC's opposition and the issues that it, that led to the opposition hadn't been resolved. And of course, we're not through this year-long review So we're only halfway through. So we really don't know what's going on here. And, you know, Phillips also pointed to the work of this transformation committee. So the assumption was that the transformation committee was going to make all these important changes to the structure uh, and governance of big time uh, college sports at the voluntary regulatory level. And that we just had to wait to see how all that played out. And that was going to be a year. He anticipated that, that one year review would be an appropriate time frame. So into the summer of 2022, uh, CFP expansions a dead issue. It's a dead letter. And then on June 30th, just a couple months ago, the Big Ten dropped its bombshell story that it was picking up UCLA and USC. And all of a sudden, everything changed. And a couple weeks later, at the a- ACC's kickoff press conference. You know, all these power five conferences, they have their summer meeting that's a really a, a kickoff to the football season and so it's football centric and Phillips was on the dais speaking for the first time publicly after the Big Ten, uh, woke from its slumber, stepped into the ring, and just landed a couple of pretty impressive haymakers (laughs) to the rest of the college sports world, particularly the SEC. So they pick up UCLA and USC and then... We're starting to get more media attention on what the Big Ten media rights contracts are going to look like. And we're talking some big, big numbers, something that was going to approach perhaps exceed a billion dollars a year, which would be precedent setting in terms of conference revenue deals and broadcast media deals. So the Big Ten all of a sudden goes from this alliance where they're huddled in the corner with two weak sisters among the power five. And all of a sudden it's standing uh, right next to the SEC on top of the map. And then I think the truth of the ACC's vulnerability is just laying bare on the table. And there have been all these questions that, that sprung up after USC and UCLA left the Pac-12. What's going to happen next? Is this the domino that's going to lead to another crazy round of conference realignment and the musical chair game that we had during the first round of conference realignment in the 1990s and early 2000s? and the most vulnerable Conference in that scenario is the ACC because it has this valuable inventory that the SEC would love to have. And, you know, Clemson at the top of that list and Florida State and Miami. And then there was talk about Virginia and North Carolina to the Big Ten. But the ACC has this long term grant of rights provision, which I, I talked about in a couple of episodes there, that basically provides incentive for schools to stay in the ACC and also penalizes them pretty substantially. And that contract went into 2036. So the ACC member institutions really felt like their hands were tied and there was a lot of frustration that they were losing ground to the schools in the SEC and the Big Ten because both of those conferences were making some bold, bold moves. So Phillips had to speak to those issues at this press conference just, what, six weeks ago, n- not even two months ago. And his comments were roundly criticized because he was doing his best to make it seem as if everything was hunky-dory and everybody's reading from the same page at the ACC. And there were a couple of quotes there that just, I think, had people scratching their heads and I think it, some found them quite distressing. So Philip says, any new structure of the NC. AA must serve the many, not a collective few. We are not the professional ranks. This isn't the NFL or NBA light. This shouldn't be a winner-take-all or zero-sum structure. College sports have never been elitist or singularly commercial. And then I also said this, uh, by all metrics, we are one of the leaders in the country, except the revenue piece of it. I mean, that one's just an instant classic. And then let's see, an ESPN writer sent out a tweet with a Phillips quote. He says, "Uh, if we take the path that it's only going to be about football and basketball, shame on all of us. I understand. I understand the criticism that comes with that. And then Phillips makes some comment about the grant of rights being solid, and he doesn't think that any schools are going to try to breach the grant of rights contract that runs into 2036. Oh, and by the way, he's also been in quote-unquote constant talks with ESPN – About the ACC's current TV deal, and he hopes that they may be able to work out a deal to bring more revenue to the conference. Because the concern is that this deal with ESPN isn't bringing in the revenue they thought it would. It was viewed as a bad deal for the ACC. It keeps them stuck in their broadcast media rights contract through twenty thirty six. And so, big time football schools, the Clemson's, the Florida States, the Miamis, they're saying, "Wait a minute, we're losing a a lot of ground here. We got to find some way to get more." money. And there were talks about changing the allocation structure because under the current uh, system, all ACC schools get the same amount of money from the conference revenues. And some of the more productive schools wanted to make more money. And so that and there were talks about that as well. But there was a lot of dissatisfaction behind the scenes, probably more than was ever reported in the media. So Phillips was feeling a lot of pressure here. And we now know that while Phillips was giving this press conference, there were uh, unreported discussions going on behind the scenes at the CFP about it expanding the playoff to 12 teams. And all of a sudden, uh, the ACC doesn't have the Big Ten sitting next to them, running interference for them and adding credibility to the ACC's public posturing and preening. And then just last Friday, we had this announcement. That the CFP is in fact expanding to 12 and Jim Phillips and the ACC just couldn't be happier he's just pleased as punch and he wants to make the case for the strength of the ACC and he just loves the trajectory that the ACC is on and all the presidents feel the same way and all these stakeholders we all feel the same way hooray hooray for this expansion that just eight months ago the ACC said over our dead bodies but what's most significant to me in that inexplicable U-turn, at least at the values level, is that the ACC all of a sudden flushed down the memory hole all of these concerns that they had about Looking at the big picture issues in college sports, those haven't been resolved by the Transformation Committee. In fact, the Transformation Committee has revealed itself as nothing more than a bait-and-switch committee that's using the NCAA's playbook for promise and delay. Promise and delay. What are they delaying for? They're delaying for their their re-engagement with Congress, which is where they've been all along. And this is just another piece of kabuki theater. And the work of this transformation committee raises more questions than it answers about the voluntary regulation of college sports and indeed the future of college sports. So Phillips promised that year-long review where we were going to try to get a handle on all of these issues and then we could talk about CFP expansion. It only took that one-year review about eight months. (laughs) All of a sudden, boy, we're done and we're ready to move on to the next chapter and we're just going to be happier with this expansion to 12 teams. But where is the concern about student-athlete well-being? Where is the concern about the, the time demands on these athletes? Where are the concerns about the nil market and the transfer portal? Those haven't been resolved. And the Transformation Committee hasn't done squat on name, image, and likeness. And that committee never intended to. And Jim Phillips has to know that. Greg Sankey, from the very beginning of this constitutional makeover, was saying that the nil issue was an issue for Congress. And for the courts, perhaps, not really for the voluntary regulation of college sports. They put out some public relations BS suggesting that the Transformation Committee was going to be talking about those issues. And there's some infrequent and oblique references to NIL in the minutes of the Transformation Committee, but they weren't going to do anything on NIL. And they have done very little on on transfers. So they've done very little of what they promised to do. And this is just rearranging the furniture a little bit to pursue this promise and delay strategy. Phillips has to know that. But now, when the ACC is in a position of weakness, all those values just get flushed down the memory hole. And, and I, I want to, I guess, make one observation. Then I want to talk about the impact of this new format on the athletes. Another benefit of this unity, the seeming unity now on conference expansion, is that the, the Power 5 know that they need to go back to Congress, and they've been pointing to the, the post-midterm environment. They're hoping that the Republicans can get one or both chambers, and they're positioning themselves to their lawyers, lobbyists, and public relations people to go wherever they need to go after the midterms. And it is not a good look if you're going to Congress while you're engaged in active war against each other. And there's this nuclear war between the Big Ten and the SEC, and there is instability in the Power Five environment that is historic and could get worse. So I think that the cooperation that is required under the CFP Format and the unanimity requirement creates at least the appearance that all of these interests have re-reconciled and they're back reading from the same page. And I think what you're going to see is essentially a ceasefire on any further conference realignment. I don't think you're going to see any bold moves until well into 2023, on the backside of the midterms, on the backside perhaps of a decision in this Johnson lawsuit. On employee status or the house suit on name image and likeness or these administrative pathways to athletes as employees. I don't think you're going to see any meaningful movement until all that stuff plays out. And then I think you, you might see a complete uh, remake of the Power Five landscape with the benefit of some either legal protections from the courts or legal protections From Congress. So, right now, they have, I think, solved their public image issues through this perception of cooperation. And that goes back to the prisoner's dilemma issue that I've talked so much about. Are these interests better off cooperating or turning on each other? This is a cartel, this is a classic cartel, a five conference cartel. And the cartel members have an important decision to make. And they always have an incentive to cheat on the cartel. And that certainly happened when the SEC picked up Texas and Oklahoma. And then the Big Ten picked up UCLA and USC. They were cheating on the cartel. And now the cartel needs some important protection. But they're only going to get that if they cooperate. And I think they achieved that through this expansion of the CFP. So it's win-win. From the standpoint of the SEC and Notre Dame, who wanted this all along, this 12-team format. And now the, the ACC and the Pac-12, who are cash-starved, get a little bit of a lifeline. They get a lifeline from the SEC and the Big Ten now. And they they get more revenue because, as part of this expansion with the additional games that will be played, the experts are saying that that could bring in another half a billion dollars in revenue to the CFP. And the ACC desperately wants that money right now, so does the Pac 12. And I think the Big 12, the uh, SEC and Big 10, are you know, they have so much money they're not going to know how to spend it. But nobody's talking about what this means. For the athletes, I just want to talk a little bit about what a 12-team format looks like and the way that they've structured this. There will be two tiers. So the top four teams will get buys in the first round, and there will be uh, four games among the remaining eight qualifiers, and that will be the first round. So you have four games, and then round two, the next weekend, the four teams that got buys will play the teams that won in the first round. So that's four games there and that's uh, takes us to round three we'll, we'll kind of get to the current format of four teams and you have two games and then in round four you have the national championship game so that's a total of let's see one two three four five six seven eight nine ten eleven eleven 11 games in this new format where there were three in the old format and you have four rounds which means this is going to be a month-long tournament. And you have all of the drama of the underdog narrative, because the way they're allocating the spots, there will be at least one group of five schools, so you're incorporating some of the elements of March Madness, the underdog narratives and and all that stuff. And you have a a month-long event, just like the March Madness tournament. And then you have the final four. It'll be interesting to see how the language changes around this new structure, but This is a massive, massive change. And these teams could be playing up to, I think, 18 games. That's an NFL schedule. This is an NFL product. This is the Power 5 version of the NFL product. And how can these people sitting in decision-making chairs at the CFP not take that into consideration? And again, that gets back to this distinction between the CFP as a private for-profit company where it doesn't have to consider the educational values of higher education or the interest of the athletes. They don't give a damn about that. This is about money. It's about making as much money as possible. And in the process of this expansion, all of the institutions associated with the CFP have just flushed their values and the athlete's interests down the memory hole. So with that, I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and close this thing out. I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care.